This episode is sponsored by Coastal Leather Supply, created by leather crafters for leather crafters, supplying premium leather, tools and all your other leather working needs. Specialised in vegetable tan leather such as Buttero, Pueblo and many others. They ship internationally and are trusted in the Australian and New Zealand leather working community. Visit coastalleathersupply.com.au So welcome to episode 29 of the Joseph M Leather Podcast. In this episode, I talk to Sam from Deacon Leather Co. Sam is from Arizona, United States and handcrafts wallets, baseballs, shell cord event shaving, strops, briefcases, pen cases and much more. His items exemplify traditional leather craft. He also has a leather craft podcast called The Leather Craft Podcast where he has interviewed well-known crafters. Welcome, Sam. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to have another leather craft podcaster. So you're now being <laughs> I think interviewed. Like, yeah, I, tables are turned now. Yeah. Well, no, I'm excited. Um, yeah, so t- tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure. So, um, as you mentioned, I'm I'm in Arizona right now, but I'm not from Arizona. Yeah. I just recently just recently moved here, and um, yeah. So I guess I've been doing leathercraft for going on about six years now, and um, I started leathercraft right as I was graduating school. So I was getting out of a very calm complicated graduate program and finally graduated in like 2015 and I decided that once I was done I was gonna do something fun and like not be so stuck in study mode and I wanted to take up a hobby so I decided to get into leather craft and I've been kind of going along ever since then mm-hmm. but um moved to a lot of different places I've lived in Virginia Utah I'm from Illinois um, lived in New Hampshire for a while. Oh, that's Chicago, isn't it? That's in... Well, I- Illinois, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Chicago's in Illinois. Oh, so, so I grew up... Yeah. Because I... Sorry, I recently ordered some Halloween leather and, like, Halloween's yeah. from Chicago, Illinois, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd really like to visit the tannery there. Um, yeah. But anyways, yeah, so I'm in Arizona now and um, just doing some more leather craft and, yeah. Yeah. No, awesome. So school, you mean you mean college? Is that yeah? Okay, right, yeah. like a university program. Okay. So I was finishing up. I did a master's program in behavior analysis. So that's like my day job. Is I'm a um, behavior analyst. So that's what I do during the day. And then I've got what I like to kind of think of as like a part time business with uh, leather crafts. So yeah, I was finishing that up like with my kind of day career. Mm-hmm. And then that's how I got into, um, yeah, yeah. Leather. So how did you like refine your skills from, I guess, like the challenges when you first started leathercraft? Yeah. So like I said, you know, I think it was around 2015 that I really started to get into leathercraft. And at the time there wasn't a ton of resources available um, they were beginning to be. It's not like there is nothing. But, yeah. like, you know, I remember kind of the one of the most popular YouTube people at the time was this guy, Ian Atkinson. Yeah. Um, I think he's still around. Yeah. But, you know, like, I remember watching some of his videos at first and really kind of, like, trying to hack my way through some knife sheaths and 
eventually I got to like some tote bags and a couple of wallets and things like that. But at the time I was living in this like really little apartment. So <laughs> it was just funny because like noise was such a consideration at the time. So I had all these contraptions to try and keep noise down and I'd use like an arbor press to try and push my uh, pricking irons down and then I'd be trying to hammer like copper rivets but it was so loud I'd have to take it with me and like cross the street over into this alleyway to go and <laughs> hammer them in the, at the night you know because wow. otherwise I'd like wake up all the neighbors yeah so, so yeah there's a lot of challenges at the beginning but um you know it was it was fun at the time and then like I'm trying to kind of trace my progression to what came next you know what i think came next is i got really into the the subreddit of leathercraft mm-hmm. and spent a, a lot of time over there asking questions and kind of like learning from these um people that were doing really amazing work and were being very generous with their time mm-hmm. um just kind of answering everybody's questions so i sort of built upon that Go ahead. Yeah, I think that's sort of similar to, um, I know the amount of times you've typed in questions on Google just to, you know, what type of glue to use and you find yourself on a on a forum and you can read all these different, like, opinions and conflicting opinions and... Yeah. And, um, but, but it, it is helpful though. Um, I think there is like a, there is like a dedicated leather, leathercraft website forum. Um, I can't remember what it's well, called, actually. It looks um, pretty old school, though. Yeah, there's leatherworker.net, which yep. is um, maybe what you're talking about. Yeah. It's, yeah, like a dedicated forum. I'm not, like, I never really was, like, super active on that website. It's cool, and there's a lot of knowledgeable people there. I've actually never, I don't think I've ever been on the Reddit f- forum Yeah, for Leathercraft. Yeah, um, I mean, there's a lot of knowledgeable people there. Yeah. So, so what is um your particular style? Because that's one of the things I I was really liked about your work is that you're one of the one of the people that share a very similar style with me, and um yeah, so yeah, and and I really like you know the work that I've seen that you've done as well, and I think like we kind of share that similar eye for maybe more of like traditional English influences at least you know I enjoy that stuff a lot yeah and I I really can't say that like that's only the type of leather style that I make I mean that's not fully accurate but I would say that it's definitely a big influence I'm kind of all over the place with my inspirations you know I draw a lot of inspiration from um like, you know, the older English styles, but then also in the same breath, like I love so much that's coming out of like Japan and like all of these different artists that are coming from all over the world. And, and then I love stuff from the American West and kind of like those influences as well. So Mm -hmm. it's hard for me to kind of say I've got one particular style because I think I kind of just get drawn into a lot of people's styles that i've looked up to over the years yeah but i know i i really i've been seeing like the the american west style recently and it's it's amazing of how um 
but it's that very like built built solidly if that mm-hmm. makes sense it's um yeah yeah um yeah it's it's very purpose built i think yeah. and you know if you start looking at like a lot of the saddlery stuff and it's built with intention you know and like mm. um so yeah like really thick leather and you, you do the you do that leathercraft podcast how how did that come about because there's, there's not many leathercraft podcasters out there like it's um it's uh how did you yeah what yeah was the inspiration behind that well i can't remember exactly when i started it or when i had the idea but um I, it was around the beginning of the pandemic, like when that all started. So I guess it's been some time now, but I remember kind of thinking the same thing. Like there really wasn't a, I mean, I think like a couple of people had sort of started some and then maybe there was a couple, you know, I know that like Philip Jerry had recorded a few just sort of like of himself and, um, you know, talking. So it's not like there was none, but there just yeah. weren't very many. And I just was, I think maybe I even had some <laughs> selfish intentions of like, I'm going to start this podcast and then I'm going to see if I can convince these people that I really look up to, to answer all the questions that I have for them. So <laughs> it worked out, worked out great for it's me. Like a, it's like and... a YouTube, like a, it's like a, you know, like when they do the the lives on YouTube and people type questions, but it's, <laughs> it's yeah. you just asking the questions. Yeah. Right. And, um, somehow or another, I don't remember, I I truly don't remember how I got in touch with Martin Carswell and just kind of talking with him back and forth. And I think we initially connected over briefcases. And I remember one night kind of getting this idea of like, it'd be really fun to interview him and kind of create this podcast. And then I was like, I wonder how hard that could be. And it really turned out to not be very difficult at all. You don't even really need all that special of equipment. I mean, you can just have like a little microphone and computer program and you're off to the races. So I asked him and I was like, hey, would you be interested in this? And he very graciously said yes. And I was like, what have I done? Now I need to go record a podcast. And I was terrified. And um but, you know, luckily Martin's such a cool guy and has such an incredible story. And I know you've talked to him as well, that it just went super smooth. And I was like, okay, and then ended up recording a few more episodes. I haven't done any lately because during the pandemic, my job shifted to remote work. And um, so I did that for like almost a year. Mm-hmm. So I just had a lot more availability to do it. And, um, now I'm back in a clinic setting doing work and it's just more challenging to, you know, take the time to get away and schedule it with these people that are doing this work throughout business hours. Yeah. So I did listen to your podcast as well to see like, it's all like to listen to them, but also to see like how you structure, like, like how, how you structure your, 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 um, your podcast. And I was like... I was, I was, I was like, well, I feel like with my one, I asked like questions too much as of, and I, I saw that you sort of connected to the person a, a lot different, which I found very interesting. So sort of, how did you go about structuring a podcast episode? 
Well, you know, I really still don't know what I'm doing with interviewing <laughs> people. But, you know, what I did was just kind of sent them a list of questions beforehand. Some people, interestingly enough, chose not to look at them because they just wanted to have a conversation. Yeah. But, yeah, it wasn't any more complicated than that. And then, you know, started telling me stories and I'd just kind of throw my questions away and start talking to them and asking follow-up questions. Yeah. I think, like, what worked well was, you know, for the the people that I have to interview that like we just kind of shared a lot of similar passions for these different strange little avenues of leather. And we just kind of connected over that. But... Yeah. And, and, and that's also sort of the hard thing as well. Like it's the first time you've ever, you've spoken to this person and you sort of have to try and make it work <laughs> like for an <laughs> hour or two hours. So it's, um, I, I've tried to do some episodes where I'm, I'm, bringing people back on and i've noticed that it's so different when you talk to someone a second time because you sort of you've you've gone through all that the first part of getting to norm and you sort of you talk to them way different than the first time i've noticed yeah you know i'm i've listened to podcasts for a really long time and i've always noticed that like with anybody and this will probably be evident in this podcast that we're recording right now but it's almost like the first 10 or 15 minutes, everyone's a little tight and kind of stiff, you know, and it's kind of those, those answers that people have been thinking about all day that they're going to give. But then eventually you kind of get past that and it loosens up and then it's just like two buddies talking. Actually, that's funny you say that because I've, I've noticed that very much as well. Like, so like before you start the interview, it's very, it's very relaxed. And then as soon as you, like start it, the person's voice like completely changes, and mm-hmm. I've noticed that there's a there's actually a point in the the episode where you I t- I can tell where their voice like changes back to casual, and that they like you can tell that they're more, they're more relaxed, and it's it's funny because like that's the point that I'm trying to get to, and it's like when when I get that point, it's like okay yes like now the now the episode's going well, <laughs> you know it's it's because like it's recording and all that and. You know, you don't want to stuff up. I'd probably, I'd probably feel the exact same way if I was interviewed. So, yeah. Well, your turn will come. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. What are some crafters that you are inspired by? You know, there's a lot. There's a lot of people that I definitely look up to. And I think, like, there's a lot of people that have inspired me over the years in different areas. Like, when I think of some of my favorite people that are doing like English style work, you know, there's a guy who isn't probably as popular as I think he should be. I think that like, you know, he's one of the most talented leather crafters around. His name's Neil McGregor. Oh yeah. So his, yeah, man, if you ever interview him, he'd be a wonderful one to get on. Valerie Michael wrote the book um, or maybe they wrote it together. I'm not entirely sure but the leather leather work handbook mm-hmm. and that was a big sort of stepping off point for me into a little bit more advanced work was finding that book in particular so i love their work um they they do excellent work i really like you know i don't want to just sit here and name drop everybody but like people like go leather um he's a japanese bag maker 
he's just you know like one of the most talented people i think in the world and he's got a, a great blog so if you're interested in bags you should definitely go check out the the blog of go like go leather and i don't i don't know the guy's name unfortunately but um he's got a blog and it's all like photos with descriptions of each step along the way and it's all in japanese so you're going to have to translate it if you don't read japanese yeah but um it's it's just such a fun inspiring rabbit hole to go down so is yeah, it, you know, those are like some... Is go it, ahead. Is it Go Leathers? Is that his Instagram? No, it. I don't think so. I don't re- recall what his handle is. Okay. But um, I'll, I'll shoot it to you. I think you, you'll know it when you see it. Yeah. Um, I got that, that the Valerie Michael book. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I noticed that they... They've actually used some of that original 1786 Russian leather. Yeah. Yeah, they've... Um, so cool. Yeah. Um, if you want to see some cool stuff, look up Neil McGregor's Instagram. Yeah, I'm looking at and it now. <laughs> it will look through towards the... Uh, it's been a while since he's posted it, but I think he made, like, a couple of briefcases out of that original Russian leather, and mm. it's one of the coolest things I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, it's like the uh, the top frame briefcase. Yes. Yeah. Oh, there's a couple. I think he did a like a Dulez bag as well, like one of those doctor bags. Yeah, I that think. one. Yeah, that's what. Yeah, that's the one. Right, and then it's so cool. Yeah, I, I did have an opportunity to actually get some of that original 1786 Russian leather, but it's it is very expensive. Like, um, yeah, yeah, just I saw it come up on eBay one time, and who knows if it was, you know, even legit. <laughs> but I mean, it, it came with a little certificate that said it was legit. But I mean, it was absurdly expensive, and yeah, it, is. it didn't even it didn't even look like something that was totally usable it looked like just a little corner of like a belly or something but mm. i don't know i didn't obviously buy it but he's used goat skin lining for the um for the bag i was like since we're actually on that topic because i'm gonna make a duffel bag and i was gonna line it with like goat skin but it, it's really small skin isn't it yeah for how, sure how, how did you go when you were lining those briefcases well um i think i used in the neighborhood of five skins wow. for each briefcase. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, I mean, it definitely was not a cheap build, um, you know. So, like, the buying, like, a full side of bridal leather plus five skin. I, I think it was five total for, I've done a couple of the briefcases. And um, I want to do one of each- eventually. Oh, you should. It, it's such a good learning experience. Yeah. Um, it's it's just you will learn so much taking on a very complicated build. Yeah, and I had a very like rocky relationship with those briefcases where I almost like became a little too obsessed with the process, and I spent just months and months and months like researching and just going so deep 
down these rabbit holes of learning about them and asking anybody I could find questions and and then trying to source it all. And then when I finally got it, you know, like I've got a day job, like I can't just spend <laughs> nine hours a day working on it straight every day, you yeah. know, so I'm just staying up until two o'clock in the morning sewing for like two months at a time. And it just, yeah, it's not something that I think I personally could do part time and stay sane. <laughs> Did, did, you, did you use them at all, or did you make them for people? Um, I've got one of them, and I sold one of them, and um, I guess I got two of them, sorry. Yeah. yeah, so I sold one, kept two. And the first two that I made, I just sort of used as a learning experience, and it's very valuable to have, like, a tangible product that you can look at and, like, remember maybe the mistakes you made and like look at things and be like, Oh, I'm going to do this differently next time mm. be- because it's just such a, a labor intensive thing. If you're not taking pictures all along the way, it's easy to kind of forget, you know, yeah. it, it was actually funny because I've actually been asking people about briefcases a lot lately. <laughs> so even like accordion gussets, yeah. I got a, I got a, Al Stolman's book, which teaches you how to do like accordion gussets. Um, yeah. It, it, another thing, like, you know, there's a, it's like, which gussets do you want to use? Like, what sort of, how far <laughs> yeah. do you want the flap to go down? Do you want to, it's, there's just so many variables that, you know, how do you want the handle to be? Do you want to, right. it's just, there's so much well, it's like, that goes into it. It's like, it. if you, if you want to be a custom bag maker, the level of knowledge and the room for error is just so high and like it's mm. it, it's just it stressed me out to extraordinary levels like making that briefcase mm-hmm. and um I'm so, I'm so glad I did it you know like those briefcases but when you have so many hours into it and there's like people waiting and paying lots of money for it you know it's just like you're learning so much but at the same time just like a mismeasurement here or a misplaced whatever there or a scratch or and then you get to like the installation of the lock which is a whole bear in and of itself so there's just like a lot of moving pieces but the knowledge that you gain from it like when you come out on the other side um yeah is definitely worth it yeah how do you how do you go into installing that lock because that that looks like one from (laughs) abbey england yeah um so the ones that I'm, I'm trying to recall, I think the a couple of them were from Abbey England, and then I think I did a black one with an accordion gusset, and oh, I had those. Yeah. yeah, if you, I I actually didn't put up very many photos of it. Yeah, you did do it. You know, to like spend three months working on something and then take like two pictures of it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you got five yeah, up. So, yeah. Right. But that lock in particular, I had custom made from a company called MMC Colombo. Yeah, I've heard them as well. Yeah, yeah, and they the lock isn't custom made, but the finish was. Yeah, and it's in polished natural brass, which I definitely prefer. And I and I originally bought some locks, like 
hardware is a whole discussion in and of itself. But um, I initially bought some locks that were like gold plated, and that sounds cool, it sounds very luxurious. But what kind of sucks about it is that if they get scratched, and they will, they just don't look very good. Yeah. They don't get like a nice patina. They get like a, ooh, that's not very nice patina on it. And um, so I really like the polished natural brass. I think that's, you know, if if and when I make more briefcases, that's going to be the only type of material that I would really want to use. Yeah. I'm not saying that there aren't other good ones, but like just for me personally, I really like the polished natural brass. But what's challenging is it's very difficult to find that finish and you typically have to order um, them from the, the company with the exception of like Abbey England. They do have a couple that are polished natural brass that are just for sale. But like if you want one that's not just that typical round lock, they've usually got like a minimum order quantity. And I got lucky and I only had to order 10 of those locks. I mean, I still got like eight of them sitting around. Um, but yeah, you know, some of them they're like, oh, you got to order 50 locks mm. before you can have any. So yeah, unless you're, unless you're going into business full time making the same briefcase, it doesn't really make sense. How did you, um, did you, which gusset did you like doing better, the the accordion ones or just the other, like the ones that you fold out? Um, you know, I've used the briefcase with the accordion gusset and I actually saw a book, um, I can tell you the name of it in a second here, but they refer to it as a concertina gusset, which mm-hmm. I really enjoy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so that gusset i i do like a lot just after using it and just like the expansion and then the ability to make it kind of obviously contract when you're not filling it up i like that a lot yeah i did experiment the very first one i did i used a gusset out of that valerie michael book yeah where i kind of like box pressed it together and it's very boxy and sort of wet formed yeah, don't you have to, and like, do you have to use a groove on it? You do. Yeah. I used a, a, a compass race, which is a tool you don't hear about too terribly often, but it's a useful little tool. Mm-hmm. And um, I put a kind of a groove in there, and then I got it wet, and then I made a wood sort of contraption to bend it into a 90-degree angle and then clamped it. And that's a cool gusset. I... I'm not sure I would necessarily make it again. It's nice because it's like wide open and it looks really cool, but it's just a little clunky to be honest with you. Yeah. There's one kind of in the middle of those two, like a three piece gusset. You know, I'm sure there's other gussets out there, but like I made one with a three piece gusset where it has Um, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. That was the most recent one that I made. And, like, it can sort of contract. It's not as rigid. But it's a little... It stands up on its own. So, like, that's another sort of thing about gussets. Is, like, if you want it to stand up, then the accordion gusset's a little trickier, you know, unless you sort of just get it right. And then it's going to be laying on its back, you know, most of the time. But if you want it to stand up real easily then you're going to need something with a little more structure yeah 
did you did you what did you see that forum that that guy that that um you wrote like the that Anderson dude that helped you was that that oh yeah that page because I think I've seen the exact same page where he sort of goes mm-hmm. through how to how to make it yeah. yeah so I I don't know the guy personally but I've talked to him a few times online and he's a very friendly person and um, put out a lot of great content very early before a whole lot of other people were. I think he was just sort of experimenting and putting up his own trials and tribulations. And I'm not, I don't know where he got his knowledge, honestly. But yeah, he's got a blog, which I'm sure is probably still up. And there's a lot of good blog posts on making briefcases in particular. And uh, yeah, he's got some really detailed yeah. um, photo albums on like, I think I saw them on Reddit initially. I think that's, yeah. Oh, you know, you're reminding me here. You're bringing me down memory lane. I think that's how I got started on briefcases in the first place was, I think I saw a post by Anderson Leather probably like four or five years ago um, on Reddit with like, you know, 175 photos outlining how he made a briefcase and i was like oh i could maybe do this Hmm. and you know i didn't follow it to the t or anything but i definitely got a lot of information from it and yeah yeah if you're looking to make an accordion gusset that's a a really good resource did you wet mold it like how he does it in that forum thing yes but it was a little different for me though because i lined it and yeah. he doesn't use a lining. Yeah, yeah. How is it to line an, an accordion? Because I, th- I, I thought you couldn't line it because of the like. There's so much bending in it. And then that that book that I have, it, um, he shows you can even line them. And I was like, whoa, you can actually line accordion gussets. I didn't. <laughs> yeah, um, you can. It's not the easiest thing in the world. You definitely need appropriately thin lining i think when i ordered mine i got it in the neighborhood of like 0.8 or something like super thin and um you can do it and you know like i don't have we kind of mentioned this earlier but i don't have a bell knife skyver so when i made those briefcases this is another reason why i don't make them regularly (laughs) But, like, when I made those briefcases, like, I ordered the leather in, I can't remember what thickness I ordered it from the tannery. It was, like, five to six ounce or, you know, six to seven, something like that. But then when I wanted to, you know, you can't just use the same thickness for the whole briefcase because otherwise it's going to weigh 30 pounds and then it's going to be super clunky and nobody's going to want to carry that. Mm -hmm. So you need the thin panels. And I don't, even if I had a bell knife, I probably wouldn't want to throw a panel through there. Maybe there's some people that can do that and get away with it. But really, I think you want to do that through, um, uh, what do they call those big ones? Like a bench skiver or something? No, that's not right. Like a, a yeah, I can't remember that. I, I don't know why I can't think of the name of it. I know it. The CSS but anyways. Board. No, no, not that. Like the big, like, co-mega ones. I don't know. They're super expensive. Yeah. But anyways, so I took and, like, made my patterns 
and cut out the you know what I needed, and then I mailed the panels off to a company and had them split it down to the thicknesses that I needed. Mm-hmm. And as long as you get your gussets the right thickness and you got your lining the right thickness and then you do some hand skiving with like you know a skiving knife here and there you can make it work yeah was the handle easy to do because i've never i've never made like a handle like that is it are they easy to no. learn <laughs> <laughs> no i i would say that there's two components of the briefcase that are the most difficult the handle is extremely challenging to make it look good if you want to do it the way that so i took the handle that i made on the first two briefcases and it's 100 percent the same as the handle that phil jury teaches in his course yeah i thought that on the on his attache case yeah and i've made that handle no less than 20 times and I'm batting like a 10% success rate. Like I've gotten, no, seriously, like I've gotten a lot of techniques down and I've written down a ton of notes that have helped me up my game with it. And like, I can get a lot closer to where I want it to be the first time now, Mm -hmm. but there's just so many areas for it to go wrong. And, and like the handle is kind of, it's like the centerpiece of the whole briefcase. Exactly, and if yeah. your hand and if your handle doesn't look good, then it kind of throws off the whole thing. Yeah. So I've got a really high standard on them and it doesn't take much leather. So, you know, you can kind of like, I budget a lot of leather just in case I need a little bit in case I need to try again, you know? Yeah. And, um, it's really yeah, nice. So, and I like it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, thanks. You know, I'll, I'll give Phil the credit on that one. I The black one, I took his design and kind of ran with it a little bit more and did a full wrap. So instead of having the, the sides edge painted, they've actually got like a wrap that goes around the side into the middle. Mm-hmm. And that made it even more complicated. <laughs> so... Yeah. So yeah, I was going to say like that's the handle's the most complicated part and it doesn't have to be that complicated. You can make it significantly less complicated, yeah. but if you're but if you're going to wet form it, it's not easy. Yeah. And then installing the lock is the other challenging part. Oh really? So not the the gussets were pretty easy to do. They weren't horrible. I mean, once you kind of as long as you measure correctly and get the corners lined up and you don't sort of get it off. Mm-hmm. Where it's going to be kind of not, it, it, as long as it doesn't fall out of square, I guess, you know, yeah. it's not so bad. Mm-hmm. How, how, <coughs> how did the straps that go underneath the briefcase go? Because that's one thing I've, I've, I've seen, I've, I've seen like when people have done it, it's like, do they, do the straps get beat up? Like if, because people are putting briefcases on the floor and the straps are there. Yeah. I mean, it obviously depends on how much you manhandle your briefcase, I guess. Yeah. Like, um, yeah, I mean, obviously they go underneath it, so they're going to get scratched up. They're not going to look pristine forever. Mm-hmm. But it is like, you know, at least for me, like I use the, the bridal leather and that lasts a, a long, long time and holds up really well. And if it starts getting beat up, you can just put some leather conditioner on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, I guess you, with all the leather 
you have to get it all split. Like the the main panel is obviously thicker than the gussets and all that, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you really do, and here's why. Like, even as it stands, like with going through and splitting it all, if you make a traditional kind of English style briefcase with like the straps and the or even without the straps, you know, like it just gets heavy. And the minute you put a laptop in there and some books and stuff and maybe some notebooks or whatever, your charger. I mean, I, I brought mine to the airport and and I, I split it, you know, like I did as much as I could to, to reduce weight. And just those traditional style briefcases get heavy. So if you don't take the time to split them, it's just going to, you're going to not want to carry it around. Yeah. Actually, that's another point. Like, how are they heavy things to carry? On, on their own, like empty? Yeah. Or what do you mean? Yeah, like when they're by themselves. Yeah, like with nothing are in you, them. With nothing in them? They're not horrible. Yeah. Um, I can't remember. I think I weighed it one time and it was like three or four pounds, something like that. Yeah, okay. But, you know, you start filling them up and they they can be heavy if you don't you know, be be mindful of not making them heavy. <laughs> yeah. How's the, the, um, what's the part that, is that like a spring still that you have to put through the top to stop it bending? Yeah. So that's like another thing that you got to think about is, um, you got to put in, you don't have to. Okay. Like there are plenty of examples of, briefcases that are like a hundred years old that didn't have spring steel in them and they're more or less fine but i like to reinforce mine and the way that you do it is you get some type of a material and you put it along kind of like right underneath where the handle goes and that just distributes the weight that way it doesn't you know all the weight isn't coming to where your handles are and it gets like kind of droopy so, yeah, I put in, like, a reinforcement bar on mine. I would say most people use, like, a spring steel. The The problem with that, and it's becoming more available, like, even in the last two years, like, there's, uh, you know, a few more people that are selling them. But, like, at the time when I was going through it, it I'm, I'm not saying that nobody was selling them. I'm just saying that I couldn't find any. So I was experimenting with different types of steel and I was ordering it through like literally a steel distributor and I couldn't find one that was light enough. And another problem is like drilling spring steel is not easy. You know, it's not like they come pre-drilled. Some of them do nowadays, but then you're kind of limited on your handle placement. So if you really want to do it custom, you know, you got to kind of drill your own holes. And if you don't have, like, a drill press, it can be kind of tricky to drill those holes. Wow. So what I opted for, what I thought was a good solution, and I've never, I'm not saying nobody else has done this, but I've never seen anybody do it, um, was I used G10, like, Gerolite. So, like, it's the same sort of material that you see on knife scales a lot of times. It's really light, and it's really rigid, and it's very easy to... Um, work and sort of like file away if you want to, um, you know, round the corners. And then it's super easy to drill. Yeah. And that's held up beautifully. And 
it's not like you're going to be carrying, you know, a ton of bricks around. You know, you don't really have to worry about it breaking. But that yeah. was a good lightweight solution. Yeah. And also, like, with, I guess, is it hard to cut spring steel? Like, if you want to make it, like, yeah. a, a, you know, a 30 centimeter piece or whatever, or however big you have to make it, is it hard to cut? Well, it's... It's not hard to cut if you have the correct tools. Yeah. Um, but if you are trying to like cut it with, you know, a ten dollar hacksaw, you're probably gonna have a, a tough time doing it accurately. Yeah. And then you're probably not gonna want just ninety degree corners on it. You're probably gonna want around the edges. So you could get like a like a double file and kind of just put it in a bench vise and just round the, the corners. But again, nowadays I think that like there's some options for pre-made ones that are probably a little less labor intensive. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, um, well, wow, there's this, there's so much in, into, into a briefcase, isn't it? Wow. It's crazy. And then, I mean, honestly, I just had to take a break from them for <laughs> <laughs> quite some time. Yeah. Well, I, I remember when I did that um, that little ha- that little handbag. It's um, yeah, I remember it just it, it it was still like really stressful and like you know the there's just there's so many you know, you know okay I need to get the rolled handles done right like, I can't make a mistake with the mm-hmm. rolling and then like you get them done and it's like okay, I need to, now 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 I need to put the gusset now I need to do the lining make like make sure the line lining is done and then. You get over that hurdle, and it's like, okay, now I need to stitch the gussets in. <laughs> and then, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I remember finishing it, like, after you finish it, like, then make, then going to make a wallet, it's like, wow, this is so much, like, I don't know, you feel like you, you've gone through such a, a stressful situation, it's like, you, your stress goes back down, and you, like, you feel like you've, you've grown from it, and, um... Yeah. Yeah. I will say, I do really enjoy stitching in 3d versus 2d like making more yeah um, like the pen cases have been kind of a newer thing that i've been exploring and like i originally started making these straight razor cases in a very similar sort of box like it really hasn't changed much the dimensions changed but same idea and man that is fun yeah well my my i made a straight razor cover and my one was actually inspired by your ones i really liked how you, how you do oh, really? that's cool. So I, I, I've sort of replicated your design oh, because it, cool. it, it was so it was so simple, and the fact that like it didn't have, um, the, it didn't have like any snaps attached to it. It was sort of just folded in. So the the, mm-hmm. the straight razor cover that I used now, it was yeah, it was, it was sort of modelled after one of your ones. I sort oh, of. Oh, that's cool, man. Yeah. So I made it out of. Uh, Bordex Buttero leather. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. It's, well, then, um, the nice thing about not having hardware is, you know, everybody wants to throw hardware on everything, and I do, like, obviously. But, like, for a straight razor, I wouldn't want hardware really anywhere near it I, that close. Like, I'll use them on the boxes because they're more protected. But, like, for a slip, you know, I don't want, like, a precision edge gonna get squished by like a snap or something like that you know so it's better to have like a leather sort of closing mechanism that's not gonna yeah. damage your razor and also like you know the, the the lock might fail or like it might 
no sure. oxidize or whatever whatever happens to brass over time <laughs> like it's yeah. that greeny tinge and then like you know in, in 30 years time or 50 years time it starts to <laughs> fail whereas like a slip yeah. it's a slip like it slides in and out so it's very um mm-hmm. yeah but um yeah who does do those pen cases because i've seen is i've seen other people like, i've seen another someone make it does make a pen case and is that like a peter knits one or something like that that he does not to my knowledge i mean i'm sure he could probably make one if he wanted to but yeah. not to my knowledge um you know it's i don't know who like originally made them the first person that i ever saw make them is this guy i i think his name is yoshi and i think he's japanese but i'm not entirely sure his Instagram handle is like Yoshi6x6, something mm-hmm. along those lines. And man, like he's, I mean, the, the best person I've ever seen do them. They're, they're, they're very good. He's been doing them for a long time. I don't know if he sort of was one of the first people to come up with it. I have no idea. I know that like the idea of a box stitched case like that isn't, new i think it's fairly traditional so you know you can kind of take that design and play with the dimensions of it and you can expand it all the way up into a handbag if you want to or like binoculars case or whatever so it's pretty versatile once you get the the idea of it the 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 stud that you put on it is, is quite nice Thanks. Yeah, I actually would like to get away from those studs and move towards more of a leather slip. And, okay. Yeah. You know, you know, I've got a lot that I want to learn on these pen cases too. I'm still, you know, like kind of finding where I want to take them. But um, actually, there's a guy that you interviewed not too terribly long ago that I've kind of spoken with a couple of times back and forth from, and I think his company is orange yeah. leather yeah he does re- or something yeah he does really good ones <laughs> yeah and um man so yeah he's kind of setting the bar for for me lately but yeah you know there's a lot of people that have made them they're not like a common thing i would say that box stitching is something that a lot of people are afraid of yeah i am but <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's not that bad once you kind of get into it do but you have, if you want, do you have to revert? Do you have to reverse prick it? I don't. Okay. Um, the thing about it is, is like, you need to be comfortable with an all. Yeah. And that goes for briefcases too. Is and it's like, if you want to start getting into more three D type stuff, and you're not just punching through a a wallet, and you're actually wanting to to do some more complex stuff like stitching with an all is an investment that will just repay itself over and over again. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, yeah. but I don't use a reverse irons to answer your question. Well, cause like, I'm not sure if my wall is not sharp enough because I'm confident with using an all, but I'm also mm-hmm. not confident using no, like if, if I reverse prick, I can, I'm mm-hmm. confident, but I'm not confident if I have to prick one side and get straight the other side. I'm not, I'm, I'm not confident in, in doing that. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, 
extraordinarily difficult yeah. to do that all day long consistently and make it look like you punched all the way through. And like, you know, I kind of probably cheat a little bit and I'll punch through most of the way and use my all sort of on the yeah. le- the remainder. Yeah. Just, and like, I try and keep it in my hand as much as I possibly can. It feels kind of weird not to stitch with one and I don't need to do that, but it, like, it's nice to have that comfort when you do need to do it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So. And it's, it sort of opens up a lot of avenues as well, like for corners as well. Like sometimes you need to, like for a tight corner on a 3D object, you kind of have to use an all. Well, there's um, like, so, so on those pen cases and like, this isn't anything I came up with. So I'm just kind of explaining a technique here, but like, on the pen cases where they are curved. Now, you'll typically see two different styles. Like, if you look at the ones that I've made where it it's, it's a almost looks like a circle on the end, and it goes around. Okay, so you've got two sets of holes there. You've got, like, an inner radius and an outer radius. And if you try and use the same size pricking irons all the way around and match them, it won't line up because yeah. like your inner, your inner radius is going to want to, you know, like get away from you and they just won't line up. So there's two ways to do it. You can either trick the, the inner sort of stitching line with a smaller pricking iron. So jump down like a size or two, or what I like to do is I use an all and I lose a stitch yeah, and the way you can do that is sort of poke into the other holes. So it's very—I would never be able to just explain it in a way that makes sense. But maybe one day I'll do like a little video of it. Yeah, I remember like Philip teaches you how to lose a stitch. Oh, okay. D- does in regards to losing a stitch, does that make the the leather more prone to like es- escape from the glue because you're not securing it like if you're missing a stitch if that makes sense no because you're not actually missing a stitch you're almost double stitching okay but you're doing it in a way that it is hidden so if anything it you're adding one little tiny extra stitch so it's okay. like you know you're going in the stronger direction not the weaker okay, direction because yeah because yeah, it sounds yeah that makes sense because it sounds like you're just completely missing a hole <laughs> like when you <laughs> Right, yeah. yeah, no, you're not, like, leaving an empty hole or anything like oh, okay. that. Okay, yeah. No, that makes sense. Actually, in regards to your, um, I remember, because I remember when I saw you earlier, like, probably the early times when I first saw you, and because I really liked your, your shaving strops, like, I think that they're just, like, like, when I think of a shaving strop, it's like I think of your shaving strops. I really like them. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. I remember you mentioned, actually, on a, about Shell Cordovan, how it used to be used for stropping. Yeah, sort of, so... What's the... Uh, yeah, why Why is that? Because I got a strop made out, uh, made out of bridal leather. It's, um... Mm-hmm. That, that I use for my... But, um... Yeah, why Shell... Cordovan, why was... Yeah, that's why. So, Shell wasn't invented for straight razor straps, but Horween in Chicago 
initially started their, it, it's my understanding, I might get a couple of the details wrong here, but the way I understand it is they initially brought on their version of Shell specifically for straight razor strops. And okay. the reason is because of like just the natural characteristics of the Shell is very... So, like, there's a lot that goes into leather when it comes to strops. Like, it, you kind of get, like, this whole new set of terminology, like, draw and, like, feedback. And, you know, if you sound like you use straight razors, so you probably know what I'm talking about. No. Like, <laughs> oh, okay. So, like, if you, if you start getting real nerdy about straight razor strops and straight razors in general, mm-hmm. a lot of guys out there have strong preferences. Which is, you know, kind of part of the whole game. Well, right? yeah, like I've, we seen, wanna... I've seen, like, guys that, that collect, like, different... Um, like, they have, like, a collection of different straight razors, so... Yeah, I mean, you might spend $700 on a straight razor, and then, you know, I've there have been people who have bought strops from me, and they'll buy five of them in different leathers because they want to try each, each one. You know, it's... Wow. If it's your hobby and you've got the funds to support it, you know, hey, it's cheaper than sports cars. So, like, <laughs> or leathercraft, probably, or leathercraft for that for that matter, right? So, you know, like, with that said, like, shell is a great stropping surface because of the draw and the sort of characteristics of it. It's a very fast draw. So, like when people refer to draw they're really talking about like the friction of the leather itself so like if you compare that to like a bridal leather or something like that it's going to have a lot more draw it's going to be a lot like grippier almost and you're you're going to get more like feedback on your razor it's going to kind of go slower i guess might be a way to sort of describe it Mm -hmm. whereas like shell tends to be a lot faster and like it's going to just sort of zip over it almost like glass yeah and you know, there's a lot that that is just personal preference. You know, some people want a very grippy strop, and they'll even go so far as to increase the draw by putting on, like, meat's foot oil or things like that. You know, and there's, a, there's so many different types of leather that are commonly used for strops. Um, but... Yeah, a lot of it's just personal preference, and I just really like the the shell versions. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, I, I I do as well. I um, well, I re- I really like that information in regards to the strop because well, when you when you wrote about the the sh- the shell, I thought you meant that. Well, I I thought it was because the shell's a lot more smoother, like a bit more of a smoother surface compared to other leathers that it just is just so ideal for stropping. Well, I mean, that is part of it. Like, that's what's going to give it that sort of glassy surface, you know. Yeah. And what's what's interesting is that, obviously, not all shell is created equally. So, you know, I've got guys, like customers, that will order different shell strops from each tannery and then, you know, like, compare the characteristics of each one and kind of, like, you know, give little feedbacks and reviews and how they like each one and how it performs. Yeah. It's, there's just so much, you know, it's cool though. It's fun. Did you only use shell for your strops? No, no, these days I mostly do. Yeah. Yeah. I think it looks cool. Um, I like the shell looking. Thanks. Yeah. And you know, I think like 
I've used um, like Chrome Excel before. I've used this type of leather, like horse front leather from Corween. They call it like north of Cordovan. Kind of funny because it like comes from the area on the horse. I think I'm getting this correctly. That's like right above the shell area. Like well, it's, it comes it's, off of the hide. It's funny you say that because um, I was I was actually watching a video because I'm getting some Halloween Essex and that's mm-hmm. tanned with the Halloween recipe. Same, mm-hmm. and because I was actually watching like how they make like some of their shells and it, it was funny because they were actually showing the guy who actually cuts the shell like and they were showing there's the part that the guy cuts away and they put it to the side, which is the, I think this is the part you're referring to. So yeah. 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 So I've, I've done that before. The the issue that I ran into that was just inconsistencies in the leather. Yeah. Um, like I would get, they're not very expensive, but there's just so much waste and like there'd be just honestly, there'd be like some really kind of rough, pieces that i would get in the mail and i'd be like wow this sort of sucks and i'd only be able to use a couple little spots of it and yeah you know the same exact amount of effort and work is going into these handles and things like that so it's like well i'd rather just make the absolute best version of something that i can like i'm i'm one guy who's doing this part-time so it's like me trying to make something uh, you know like that i can sell for less money doesn't really make sense you know like i'm gonna instead of trying to like make something like a budget version i'm gonna try and make like the best possible version that i can come up with because i only have so much time exactly i i I share the exact same thought and that's why i got that like hallway essex because it was so expensive but it's like okay i want to make a duffel bag and I'm making it for myself mm-hmm. because I don't, I've, I've, I don't actually have a duffel bag. So, but it's like, yeah, me neither. <laughs> but it's like, um, I'm just gonna go all out on it. Like, I, I want to make this for myself. I want to make it well. And it's like, mm-hmm. then you just want to use like the, is the fine, finest materials that you can, you can get. Um, that that's interesting because, um, because when I was like, when I first got into the the straight razor, there was the there was people were saying about how you have to have like you should have like a linen as well as your mm-hmm. like as well as your strop and I, I tried to find some of that linen that you get but i, I couldn't find mm-hmm. i couldn't find it anywhere like is do you need to have linen with a strop like, i like how you got yours with it it looks really nice but you... yeah well the problem is it's like gone um so in the the pandemic really did a number on the the factory that was making that stuff in England and they can't get any of the raw materials and long story short I got enough to make about two more of two more strops with that with that English linen kind of until further notice yeah so it's been really difficult to source that stuff which is you know there's so many different things I could say about it but like you know, that's a big reason why I'm making them in three inches wide because that's the, the width of the linen that's available. Mm-hmm. But, like, some guys get real particular and they're like, oh, I want a two-and-a-half-inch wide strop. You'd be surprised. People get real particular about that half inch. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, some people have had bad experiences with cupping on straight razor strops where 
the handles aren't made correctly and then it'll start to sort of bow in. So, you know, and that probably happens a little more frequently on three inch drops, but there's ways to sort of make it so it doesn't do that as much. Yeah, I don't even know what the length of my straight razor is, actually. If it's vintage, it's probably in the neighborhood of three inches or no, maybe even a little bit less. It's a Do- Dover one. Yeah. I mean, it's From... probably... I mean, the benefit of the three inches is, like, you can fit the entire blade on there without doing any X strokes. Yeah, but yeah, lot... yeah. Yeah, mine, mine's as wide as that. But a lot of guys, the old school guys, are very particular, and they say that, like, if you're not doing X strokes, then... You know, you're not doing it correctly. Yeah. And, like, I don't really have an opinion on that either way. I think three inches is just easier, and people yeah. seem to enjoy it. Yeah, well, that's, that's, so. why, that's why I made the wider one, because it fits the whole blade on it. Because yeah. does normal linen still... Because I, I remember I did I did buy some linen, but it wasn't that sort of mm-hmm. English linen. Um, is, is that still well, all right to use, or do you have to have, like, a sp- that specific... Oh, no. no okay. So, like, here's the thing with, like, this... A lot of people refer to it as, like, a second surface, right? So, like, the the linen really has one purpose, okay? And that is to clean and prepare the razor prior to stropping. Okay. So, you could use... You could use a piece of fire hose, and a lot of people do. You know, you can, like... Cotton is very popular... I just think that the the English linen is a very nice sort of more luxurious version yeah. of that. Now, here's the thing is like most people will have a second linen strop that they'll put polishing compound on mm-hmm. or like a, a sharpening compound, like a paste. Now, I wouldn't recommend anybody puts like a paste on that english linen it's just too nice to get all gummed up with nasty paste but most people have a second you know thing that they put their paste on and that's actually going to be sharpening the blade because like that polishing compound is abrasive and it's going to actually be removing you know microscopic little bits of of metal Whereas, like, the, the strop is really just sort of putting that final touch on, sort yeah. of aligning it and everything, you know. Is there a difference between the different handles? Because I know you like, I've seen some strops, they use, like, the metal, like, brass handle. You got the, uh-huh. you got the, like, the more classical handle. Do, do they make much of a difference? Functionally, not really, no. Yeah. Um, you can put, like, a barber's notch on there, which is... A lot of times, like, literally you just have, like, a squared off piece of leather, and then you might sew another piece of leather on there that you can kind of grip. So you're you're literally holding on to the, the strop leather itself. Um, and then some people will use sort of, like, D-rings from, like, a saddle, and you can kind of hold on to those. I like to just make mine a little over-engineered and kind of, they feel real nice in the hand. And yeah. So, like, here's sort of... I guess there are maybe a couple functional reasons why. So, like, mine you can take apart. Like, the the Chicago screws you can remove. Yeah. So, for example, I had a guy that bought a strop from me. And actually, he was in Australia. And um, he nicked it. He put a cut in it. 
and sent me an email and was like, hey, put a put a big gash in my strop. Can you send me a replacement? So I was like, yeah, sure. So I just cut out another piece of shell and mailed it to him and told him how to do it. And then he removed the handles and put them onto the new piece. And then you're good to go. That's good. Yeah. That's Whereas good. like, yeah, some of the other ways, you know, are a little more permanent and you don't quite have that option. Yeah. That's awesome. Is there a difference between the different shows, like the Shinky show and the Halloween show? Like, have you, from customers? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. I actually just did a YouTube video on it. I've got, like, very little YouTube following. I just started a channel not too long ago. But if you're interested in that, I did a very um, specific video on the difference between Italian Toscana shell the Shinky and Horween okay. and um, all three are compared in relation to their performance on straight razor straps. So it's really not like, you know, what makes the best wallet. It's more so like, <laughs> it, it's more so like, what am I going to expect when I, you know, like am ordering this or that or whatever. So that would be like a good thing to check out. It's probably like, 20 minutes or something like that but 30. just kind of a quick overview yeah 30 i get a little <laughs> long-winded oh, I'll but, watch. Um, I, actually i did watch some of it oh, i'm gonna have to rewatch it cause... yeah so like just to kind of give you a real quick overview like between the three um horween is going to be in some cases like like, I really like their marbled versions over some of the other ones. And it really just comes down to, like, kind of texture and, like, Shinky is going to be real fast. I really like Shinky. I think Shinky's, uh, for my money, it's, you know, one of the best shells you can get. I really like Horween as well. I don't dislike any of them, so it's not like I have a favorite yeah. per se. But, um, like, the Toscana is going to have a little bit more grip on it um and kind of in the video i make the comparison of like it's almost like taking your finger and if you've ever like kind of rubbed it on like a glass coffee table that's been recently cleaned like you know how it's like so polished and smooth that it almost grips it a little bit like your finger sort of slows down from like just how clean the glass is you know well, some of the shells are just a little bit grippier, I think, because of the surface. Whereas, like, the Horween tends to be, in my experience, a little bit more of, like, a matte finish. And then Shinky's kind of in between. So it's, like, very minute differences, but it's just kind of, like, how grippy it is in the draw and some of the feedback you get. Yeah. is because um, the Ricardo, that will, the shine will come off over time. Would, would the, does that mean the grip will slow up over time? Um, it'll break in. So, like, there's a kind of routine that I would recommend for maintaining these straps. And really, you don't want to put any conditioners on them because it actually can change the draw of the strop. But you use, like, your, your bare hand and you just kind of rub your palm up and down on it. And it'll transfer some of the natural oils from your hand onto the shell. And that'll keep it pretty good. 
um, in terms of like not losing too much of its luster or anything like that. And you really, you really want to avoid getting it wet, getting it wet, particularly like, you know, that Toscana shell does not like water. Um, yeah. It seems like the the Horween is a little bit more forgiving, but yeah, you want to avoid those water spots. Yeah. Well, that, that's 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 uh, that's so much. That's so in depth. <laughs> no, I like it because it's it's not um, as simple as just getting a strop and stropping it. There's there's so much that goes into it. Have you tried that? Yeah. Or, have you tried that Og- Ogawa shell cordovan? Um. No. no. The letter Ogawa. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. Um, they've got some beautiful colors. I yeah, think it's Japanese, I think. Yeah. Or... Yeah, I've looked at it, and I've Googled over it and considered buying it, but um, I haven't purchased any. So, what was the, what was the idea behind getting into, like, sh- straight razors? You know, I've always Stop. enjoyed wet shaving. Um, yeah. Ever since I was, like, a kid, I... You know, it's kind of funny, like, I've got my great-grandfather's straight razor, like, wow. it was given to me in beautiful condition, like, I still use it, like, I restored it, I honed it, and it, it looks brand new, and um, it came in this little leather case, it was really cool, and then I've got my other grandfather's on my my uh, father's side, his straight razor strap which was given to me. And there was kind of this funny story about how if the kids got in trouble, he would threaten to give them a whipping with the straight razor strop. <laughs> so every, which like, I don't think was actually true, but it was just kind of this legend amongst like the, the kids that like grandpa was going to get this like straight razor strop if you, you know, weren't listening. Yeah. So it was very much like part of our childhood, just like laughing about it. And then like, as I got older and, you know, moved in i don't even know how long it's been it's been probably at least 10 or 15 years since i started wet shaving but i started with like a double-edged razor and did that for years and years and then eventually kind of had this collection of older straight razors that i started learning how to restore like i would get like some automotive sandpaper and you know like polish them up really nicely which surprisingly enough taught me some early lessons about how to shine the edges of shell yeah. cordovan card wallets because it's the same principles but like yeah i learned you know how to sharpen these how to hone these straight razors and then eventually i was just like oh i need to make strap and then i was like oh i want to make a good one and then i just kind of kept going with it and realized that not very many other people were doing it and thought well this is something i could sort of lean into and have yeah. fun with that that's 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 so fascinating because yeah, there is a bit of a transition to the straight razor because you know you i think you, you do go to the double wedge razor like I, I remember you know using it i think one thing mm-hmm. one thing that was so annoying for me was having to constantly buy blades like mm-hmm. and that's sort of what led me into the direction of the straight razor and i remember when i first bought one it was so it was so daunting like, i remember like shaving for like the first time using it and it was <laughs> and it's just such a rabbit hole to go down these things you know these little micro hobbies that people get it's yeah. like you start looking into like the soaps you know the shaving soap and it's like before you know it you got 20 different soaps 
And then, you know, you start looking at the different brushes that people are making these days. Yeah. Like, they're so incredible. When I was watching some people on YouTube talk about it, I think a lot of, a lot of the guys, they, they enjoyed just having to, you know, it was sort of a moment where they were just by themselves. They could just, they could just shave. And it was sort of like mm-hmm. a very, you know, it wasn't rushed. It was very something slow. And there's, there's so much... Learning, learning to go to it, you know, you got, um, I was watching this one guy, he, he would do, like, you go with the grain, across the grain, mm-hmm. and then against the grain, and I remember, I, I remember doing that, but I found that, um, my skin was, like, way too sensitive to, like, reshave again, so I sort of had to, like, I go, like, with the grain, and then against the grain, and then that's it, um, yeah. It's, it's complicated. Yeah. It's not complicated, but there's like, there's a lot of technique involved. Yeah. And if you're not like, like you, you have to take a good look at your own face yeah. and kind of map. No, like you, you do. You do. Kind of, it's true. You like map out your, your beard growth. And yeah. what you'll notice is that your beard, most people's grows in all kinds of crazy different directions. So you might think that you're shaving with the green, but then you get to a part of your face and suddenly you're shaving against the green, you know, like my face looks like a Doppler radar, like of a hurricane blowing through like, you know, the ocean. It's just like a big swirl. So it's very like, you gotta be mindful of that. Yeah. Especially like the neck area. Like, um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's actually funny you say that because, yeah, you, d- you do learn about all the different ways your hair grows and it sort of, it takes a while until you sort of get it perfectly um clean. Do, do you shave, uh, do you do it every day? Because, yeah. Uh, you know, honestly, I've got a beard and oh. I just kind of uh, trim it up like around the corners in my neck. Yeah. Um, but not every day. I don't have time every day, honestly. But yeah. maybe every other day. Yeah, I, I can't shave every day. My skin sort of... Well, I found that if if I shave every day, I get a bad shave. Like, the hair, it just doesn't get it all. Um, yeah. So, um, so how, how, do you, how are you storing your straight razors? Well, I mean, I've got a bunch of them. So, like, I've got some of my favorite ones in like a little storage box, like a leather box stitched box that I made. And there's like a couple pictures of it on my Instagram. Oh yeah. I think I have seen or, Yeah. And then the rest of them that like, I just don't have enough of those cases I've got in like a cigar box kind of wrapped up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The leather you like to use. That's a good question. So lately, you know, we've been talking about it a lot, but I really do like using shell um, I think that I've just been, it, it's almost like once you start using that, it's, you kind of get a little spoiled and then that's all you want to use. But there are some amazing other leathers out there though. Like shell isn't the one stop shop for everything, right? Like there's, you know, I really like, um, the, the buttero leather, like the Italian stuff and the, um, Pueblo leathers. And I know those are pretty fashionable right now and like a lot of people are using those but like i think for good reason um yeah and there's you know there's a lot of really cool ones i love bridal leathers for sure like that's what i like to use for the the briefcases and the belts and any kind of strapping type things um but you know those are probably like my 
my go-tos. I would love to start using more exotics. I think that's a big area of my leathercraft life that I've yet to explore. It'll probably be a direction that I save for when I get to a place where I have a bell knife. I guess we didn't even touch on the fact that I moved into an RV, so I'm living in a... uh, you know, an RV now. So like I had to downsize my, my shop by almost 80% and get rid of so many things just to make it more manageable to drive around with. Yeah. So I think like, you know, before I was sort of equipped to take on a lot more projects, like I could take on a lot and I could do many different things. But now it's like I've really had to, you know, reconcile with, like, what do I want to focus on? And I'm going to get rid of the redundancies. Like, I'm going to keep two knives and not have 12 knives, you know. And, like, it was very difficult for me to get rid of a lot of things. But I think what was interesting is that I realized that you don't need all this stuff that you accumulate. (laughs) Like I don't know what your leather shop looks like. Well, I'm I'm quite, I'm quite minimalist to be honest. I I, I I don't really I like buying tools, but I don't like buying tools. Some days ago, I sort of my where I put my tools. Was, so actually, I was like, okay, I need to clean out the tools that I do use and the tools that I don't use, and sort of I rearrange the ones that I do use. And there's actually quite a little selection of tools. It's it's not quite a lot to be honest i think uh, what i would like to get is a bell sky but that would just make such a huge yeah. difference but yeah right but yeah, yeah it's fascinating yeah to start trimming it down yeah and, and it's yeah so i guess with an rv you have to slim down a lot with all your tools <laughs> yeah it's been a challenge you know like a fun challenge it's like we can go anywhere and we're kind of traveling all over the desert you know, and like being in these like cool places and, you know, I'm sitting there in, you know, national parks, like stitching wallets, like sitting outside by the campfire or whatever, you know, like it's been a lot of fun, but it's come with challenges too, yeah. of, you know, dealing with mail, you know, it's just something that you just take for granted, like mail or the internet. Like I, you know, had a hard time connecting with you because my, you know, I ran out of data, you know, it's something people don't really think exists anymore but like if you don't have a, a permanent address then it becomes something you gotta deal with yeah what's it like to not have a permanent address somewhere like <laughs> well as i said it comes with challenges you know <laughs> like I, we do have you know we're not entirely mobile like we will we've got kind of like a home base in an rv park because i do have a day job so, like, Monday through Friday, I am, like, commuting into, you know, the same place. And then on the weekends, we have a tendency to sort of drive around to different areas of the Southwest and stay in these different places. Um, like, next week, we're going to Flagstaff. Hopefully, it doesn't snow. but um, Or at least, hopefully, it doesn't snow while I'm driving. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, so, like, it's been it's been a lot of fun. It's just been a couple of little things like, you know, the mail and the internet are probably the two biggest annoyances. Yeah. If you don't mind me asking, why did you decide to go into an RV? 
Yeah, no, I don't mind at all. You know, it's partly for the adventure. Yeah. Just like being being able to move around and not being tied to a particular location. Um, I've always like I've moved a lot of places. I think I previously mentioned I've lived in like four or five different states and just kind of bounced around the, the country with my family. So it's very difficult for me to like make roots in a place because I think we kind of get bored quick and we're like, all right, well, we're going to move on to the next city. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so like having the, the ability to just, you know, I could move to the East coast tomorrow if I could find a reservation, you know? Yeah. So I think like partly the adventure of it. And then honestly, partly to just like the, the housing situation right now is just absolutely absurd. And, the the homes that people are purchasing are so ridiculously overpriced at the moment that i was like i used to we we used to own a house we used to have a farm and uh, i had like a really nice leather shop and we had like you know a horse barn we didn't have any horses but we had a horse barn and everything and you know chickens and all that but we sold that went out here and then you know, people are spending a hundred thousand dollars over the asking price for a home, and it's like I'm not going to play that game. So yeah. we were like, "Well, what's something fun that we could do that's kind of different?" And so we decided to go for this RV. So we bought like a big fifth wheel, which I don't know if you know what that is, but it's like a type of a a trailer that goes onto your truck, kind of like a semi truck trailer. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so. It's been a lot of fun though. Lots to learn. Yeah. yeah. I'm looking at the picture now of the um of the R V. Yeah, that's cool. I know you could have a yeah, I know you could be you could be going all over the place on the east coast or mm-hmm. it'll be difficult to get to Australia though, you might have to board a ship or something. <laughs> Send a barge my way. Yeah. Um so, uh, items you're inspired by, uh, I guess you could p- combine these two. So items you're inspired by and items you'd like to make in the future. You know, there's a lot of things I'd like to make in the future. Um, I've kind of got this list of items that like I'm planning on making one day, you know, and I've, I've sort of gotten there on a couple of them. Like I, I think a briefcase was definitely high on that list. I didn't necessarily make that first briefcase because I wanted to do anything with it. I wasn't necessarily thinking like, Oh, I'm going to become this briefcase maker and make a whole bunch of them, you know? Um, but it was more so like, I wanted to just accomplish it, you know, and like learn it and do it. So that was really fun. And I'm still not done with briefcases yet. I really want to make a, like a doulas bag, like a doctor bag, but you know, I would want to do it kind of all out and really make it neat. So that would be like a sort of top notch you know, achievement for me. I don't think I'll be taking that project on any soon, anytime soon. I'd really love to do like a, you know, a lid over attache case. Like a lot of the traditional luggage I think would be like on my list. Yeah. Like 
I'd love to make a trunk, you know, there's a big piece of me that would absolutely love to make like a Western saddle, like for a horse, <laughs> even, yeah. no, seriously, even though I know very little about horseback riding, like it's just something that I would love to do. Yeah. We went horseback riding last weekend, which is a lot of fun. But... Yeah, I want to I go horseback riding. It's fun. I mean, I'm not trying to become a saddle maker or anything like that, but you know, it's just something that like, if I can sit here and dream, like that would be a fun project. Um, I'll probably be less likely to do that than like some of the luggage type things, but like a trunk would be really fun. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I, I think those are probably like some of the biggest ones. Yeah. No, that, that's cool. And it's, it's cool to, um, to see how like they're made as well even with like the the attache cases or whatever you know you see mm-hmm. like the raw like the raw item and then how it slowly comes together and it's like okay that makes sense like how they've done this and this and this like you sort of see the mm-hmm. the, the little intricate steps that makes the, the briefcase so yeah it's it's interesting because I think it's such a wonderful time to be in Leathercraft because all of this information is coming to light and like everybody, not everybody, but like, you know, you're starting to get these courses that are putting these sort of secrets that have been held for, you know, maybe a couple hundred years are kind of hitting daylight. Yeah. And what's, and what's so wonderful about that, not just cause like, we all get to see how it's made and everything like that. But like, I'm starting to realize like how many trade secrets have been lost over the years. Mm. And here's like a good example is I became moderately (laughs) obsessed with tracking down this set of rare books. And they are known as the leather manuals um, from a company that was called the leather connection. You can no longer find the website. I just looked today, and it is no longer up. But they're written by a guy named Francis Burdett Mills, and he was the like the headmaster. I think was his title of the the Cordwainers College in England, and he taught college level courses on fine leather work, like back when you could go to college to or university you know, to learn how to make wallets and luggage Mm -hmm. when it was like a thriving industry. Okay. So extraordinarily knowledgeable about all of that stuff. And he was an older guy when, you know, he was writing these books. So he wrote this series of books and he originally was going to publish seven books in this series. And they progressed from just like light leather goods all the way up until he was going to make books on trunk making and like heavy luggage and all of these super cool things that you see in magazines from like, you know, 1900. Okay. And the tragedy of the story is that he wrote books one through four and then died and never got to books. Um, five through seven, which is where he was going to communicate, you know, his 70 years of luggage knowledge. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's just like, it's such a sad sort of story in that, like all of his knowledge is now gone 
and there's no real record of it, you know? And, like, it's so difficult to... Like, if I wanted to make a trunk, there's not a great resource for it that I'm aware of. I would really need to, you know, like, somebody like Neil McGregor, who's, like, an expert in that style of stuff, like, he's probably, like, one of the few people that I can think of that, like, comes close to that body of knowledge. But, like... uh yeah, so it, I guess what I'm really saying is, like, it's nice that, like, there's a permanent record of this stuff, so it won't yeah. be lost. Um, it's actually quite interesting, because I know even with boot making, like, with rider's boots, there's a particular mm-hmm. style of rider's boots which are not produced anymore, and, like, no one knows how to do it. So it's like... Oh, that, really? It's, that skill is just, like, gone. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> That's cool. I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah, that but, about. like... Yes, yeah. but yeah, it's, it's um, well, it 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 is it's, it is sad. Is anyway like, so have you actually tried to find these books? Well, I've got books one through four, the ones do that you? were written. Wow, I do. And what are they like? The, they're kind of a. I don't mean to be derogatory towards the guy. They're a bit of a mess. Um, they're an incredible body of knowledge. It's sort of just a giant wall of text. The guy wrote it when he was towards the end of his life and just dumped all of his knowledge into, um, you know, like a Microsoft Word sort of document. So it's not for the faint of heart. It's by no means like a beginner sort of thing. A lot of people didn't like them. Like if you find reviews on them, people were like, this doesn't make any sense. But like if you are able to conceptualize what he is talking about you know there is just a tremendous amount of information in there that i haven't even begun to scratch the surface on and uh yeah there's a whole section in there so he's the guy who referred to the concertina gussets or the accordion gussets and there's a whole section on that and um, he talked about you know making briefcase handles and things like that so I guess, like, if you're in a if you're in a rush to make something, you you, you can't like put a if you you're sort of gonna put what's on your mind straight down. Whereas if you have someone like I don't know if you had someone to explain it to and then they write it for you, it'd probably come out a lot more yeah. Smoother. And, so and when you read it, well, when you read the the descriptions of things, he would be like, well it's been 10 or 15 years since I've owned a copy of what I'm talking about, like an example. So I can only explain it because I don't, you know, it's been 20 years since I've made a, you know, box like this. Mm -hmm. So, and then there'd be like a couple things where it'd be like a photo of like student work and stuff like that. But it was very fascinating though, because he would even have like their, like you would literally have to take tests and he would come and grade your work using this very like objective criteria of like, Oh, your stitching's off here. You lose a point and so on and so forth. That's and you would awesome. need to, it, it was literally a university course on fine leather work. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, it's actually interesting because the, the next question, like I was going to combine these two was, um, how has Leathercraft changed the way you look at items and the internet and Leathercraft? 
You know, I think that like I'm, I don't know if it's just Leathercraft that has done this or what, just like maybe a frustration with the quality of things in life over the years, but I found myself buying a lot less just because I get so frustrated when things are bad, like poor quality, Mm -hmm. you know? And, um, I think Leathercraft must've impacted that to some extent, but like, I'm not gonna just go buy like, you know, just like random things. Like, like I'm not just going to go buy a bunch of like jeans, you know, like blue jeans. Like I'd rather save up a little bit of extra money and buy like a really nice pair from a, a local company or like a company that's like a smaller company and they're making it out of, you know, like higher quality, like raw denim or something like that, you know, like just trying to find better versions of things I think has, um, you know, that's probably spun me in that direction, but really I just find myself buying less because I, (laughs) you know, what happens honestly is like, I'm buying less because I can't always like justify spending the money on what I want. So I just don't buy it. (laughs) Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. It is interesting because it, I've noticed the same thing where you don't really buy as much anymore. Like you sort of, because you're making items that you want to use and take care for and you want to make them last for a a long time, you sort of look at items the same way. Like how can I use this item to make it last a long time and, and use it sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, totally. Yeah. But what about the internet and leathercraft? How do you think? What What do you mean? So, I think I think you probably nailed it when you said about how items are coming, like secrets that weren't told, like weren't known, are mm. coming more to light now because of sort of I guess people talking about it in the internet, especially you know even where I live, there's no you know leathercraft school. Or no, like university course on on leather work. You know, a lot of the things I've learned is from, you know, seeing people make things, or like you know, Philip Jury's course. Yeah. You know, so it's like someone teaching you how to, hey, just do X Y Z, <laughs> and uh-huh. you can make a rolled handle. Um, and just obviously try right. it over and over again. So, I guess, what's your opinion with, yeah, with like internet and leather craft and all that yeah i don't know yeah Yeah. well you know i think it's great like i think as i said it's kind of a beautiful time to be in leather craft just do the accessibility of everything um it's kind of a double-edged sword because like a lot of people are into it now so it's easier to fall into those traps of comparison that we kind of talked about previously but if you know that aside like the availability of tools and knowledge is more abundant now than, you know, it, it all I can say is that it was six years ago. Yeah. Like even as, as current as six years, which is kind of nothing when you think about like the history of leathercraft. I mean, I'm not trying to pretend like I've been for 25 years or anything like that. You know, I'm still pretty young compared to a lot of, you know, these really experienced people, but like, you know, even in those six years, it's like, I remember when it was difficult to find 
tiger thread. Like that's what oh, everybody wanted. Yeah, I remember that. I remember <laughs> even like the how hard it was to find that filet schwa thread. <laughs> like, yeah, I remember. How, I remember. Like... How, I remember having to buy like I think it was like fifty <laughs> meters or something from some guy from Etsy of some yeah. white filet schwa thread. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I remember absolutely. that. Like tiger thread was like. <laughs> It's like gold. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you know, like if you had a roll of tiger thread, you were awesome. Like you, you had to know someone to like get tiger thread. <laughs> That's so funny. You know, I, I sort of wondered if I was the only one who had that experience. So thank you. You just like justified that. Yeah, for me. I remember that. That was like 2018 now, and all that. And now, like you know, you can buy filet chamois thread, tiger thread from like Buckle Guy, Rocky Mountain. Yeah, now it's everywhere. Yeah, you know. So, yeah, I, I would just say, like, the accessibility has been fantastic and just much easier to get everything. And there's so many good courses now that you can take, depending on what your interests are. Yeah. Thanks for coming on, Sam. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. I had fun.